Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. We entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Judith Herman. She is a clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and director of training at the Victims of Violence program at Cambridge Hospital. Herman has spent the majority of her career addressing issues arising from post-traumatic stress and in particular, incest. Professor Herman has a new book coming out this month titled Truth and Repair, How Trauma Survivors Envision Justice. I'm joined by 18 of my Harvard classmates. Bill Collins, class of 63, physics, Navy, 20 years, nuclear power, Navy. And then I had a tour in the bomb business in the Department of Energy. Knew about reactors, not about bombs. I learned about bombs. I <laughs> knew what was making them. And, uh, and then, as I indicated, I retired to the Navy, went to work for Westinghouse in Pittsburgh, and then to work at the Savannah Riverside in nuclear waste cleanup. I'm now retired from doing all that, do a bunch of volunteer work. Here with my wife. Okay. David Othmer. Uh, David Othmer, also class of 63, grew up in Central and South America, spent most of my life in the nonprofit world, uh, specifically public broadcasting at WNET in New York City and WHYY here in Philadelphia, where we live and have lived for 30 some years. All righty. Jerry. Good morning, Jerry Sikhani in Pasadena, California, a lawyer. Um, most of my work has been in the environmental field, spent a couple of years in the Peace Corps in Cusco, Peru, worked for the Department of Justice, worked for an oil company, and then lots of nonprofits. And I've been in California since 1972, and for the first time ever, we have an avalanche warning, hmm. which is a little unusual <laughs> for us. Oh, <laughs> We're wow. expecting five to six feet of snow. Wow, wow. great, great. Peter. <laughs> I'm a, an editor and writer in Northern New Hampshire. <clears throat> I spent some time in Southern Africa when I was young and I've always been interested in the uh, truth and reconciliation process there. And always wondered how that worked. I always had my doubts about it. That was before, that was after I was there. <laughs> I've never been able to get a good idea exactly how well that worked. Hi, um, I'm Liz Mori, class of 63. I'm a retired clinical psychologist at this point, or almost retired. Um, I live in Tacoma Park, Maryland. And the reason that I'm in Maryland rather than in California, which is where I spent many, many years and where I grew up, um, is because both of my children are just retired foreign service officers. Um, and. So hi to Judy and hi to Eliza. Okay, <laughs> John, John and Eliza. Oh, we don't, well, we we're, we we know Judy very well. Yeah, we're we're old friends. Yeah. Okay. But, uh, we, but we're here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Yeah, yeah. All right, I'll move on then to Mason. Uh, Mason Morfitt from uh, Maine, although currently I'm in Florida looking at all you guys in your fleece and your sweaters while the overhead fan deals with the 85 degree temperature. <laughs> okay. Ham. 
Yes, uh, Hampton Howell. Uh, I was in social relations at Harvard, 63. And somewhere along the line, I, I read several of your books, Judy Herman. I don't remember what they were at this point. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I, I remember I was very impressed by them. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and I... Uh, drew on the uh, uh, learning in, uh, about sexual abuse in them. You're still, you're still working though, right? I'm a non-retired clinical psychologist. Okay. George. George Jones, class of 63, happy to be hosting my good friends and classmates, John and Eliza, yeah. here in Ann Arbor. And, okay. oh yeah. Uh, day before yesterday, I turned 81. Oh, oh youngster. Oh. Welcome to the club. <laughs> yeah. Susan. Uh, Susan Swanton, class of 63, outside Rochester, New York, with a small ice storm uh, outside. So if I disappear, you yeah. know I lost power. But I'm with you today. All right, great. And Judith, thank you so much for joining us and welcome and tell us about your life and your book and, and okay. go from there. Yeah, well, th thank you for having me. Um, uh, uh, class of 64, uh, I then went to medical school and became a psychiatrist and um, uh, have lived in Cambridge ever since I came to school as an undergraduate. Um, I was in a consciousness raising group uh, in 1970 when I started my psychiatric residency. Um, and being in, in a CR group uh, sort of allowed me to listen to my patients in a whole different way because, you know, the, the group I was in was, you know, mostly Cliffies, white, highly educated. And guess what? Um, when it got down to talking about what really was going on, quite a few of them had experience of sexual assault, sexual harassment, domestic violence. You know, so even this very privileged group was talking about violence against women all the time. And then, um, when I, my first two patients on the inpatient service where I started my residency were women who had made suicide attempts um, and were hospitalized and started to tell me about experiences of incest when they were children. And, you know, at that time, the comprehensive textbook of psychiatry estimated the prevalence of all cases of incest as one per million. Mm. Um, but here I was with two cases already. So what were those odds? And, and actually I believed my patients and allowed them to talk about it. And what do you know, they started to get better. Um, so one thing led to another and um, pretty soon I was collaborating with a psychologist named Lisa Hirschman, who was um, uh, 
had a, a bunch of incest cases in her private practice. And, and pretty soon we collected 20 cases and we published our results in the Women's Studies Journal. And what do you know, we started getting letters from all over the country mm -hmm. saying, I thought I was the only one. I thought it was my fault. I thought no one would believe me, you know. So one thing, I, that's kind of how it all started. So I credit really the women's movement for everything. Um, and um, I, in, in 1981, well, Lisa and I then got a contract with Harvard University Press to write a book about this. Um, by the time, then we each had a baby. Um, by the time I was sort of ready to get started, Lisa had had a second baby. She said, you, why don't you just write the book? So that's what I did. Um, and uh, kind of on the strength of that, I started working at um, Cambridge Hospital, which was and still is a Harvard Teaching Hospital and a, a, what's called a safety net hospital. It takes care of poor people and undocumented and people with addictions and people with HIV and all the people that nobody else wants to take care of. Um, and what do you know, we saw lots of trauma. And so, um, and trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder had just been validated as a real diagnosis, even though it had been written about, you know, for, you know, since, uh, certainly since World War I, where it was called, um, uh, oh, they called it soldier's heart and things like that. Um, anyway, it wasn't, it was really because of the Vietnam vets that it became recognized as real diagnosis because the Vietnam veterans against the war um, said, you know, when they were throwing their medals over the White House fence, they basically said, look, we're, we're home, but in our heads, we're not home, we're still in Vietnam, you know, and we're looking for, you know, snipers and um, explosives, you know, every time we go outside, we're casing the block to see where the snipers are, you know. Uh, and so that's how it got recognized as a real diagnosis. And I began uh, a study group, the kind of informal study group with my friend, Bessel van der Kolk, who has since become, you know, Mr. Trauma, um, uh, who was working with combat vets. And um, what do you know? Um, post-traumatic stress disorder in common fits didn't look that all different from post-traumatic stress disorder in battered women and rape survivors, you know? So I wrote my second book, Trauma and Recovery, basically saying that trauma is trauma, whether you're looking at, you know, the public world of war and, uh, uh, you know, prisoners of war and combat vets and survivors of genocide, or whether you're looking at, you know, 
incest survivors and you know survivors of gender-based violence um and 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 the other thing i wrote about in that book was to say and you know what the the history of trauma is one of these things that goes in and out of awareness depending on whether there's a political movement to support survivors um because if there isn't a political movement, nobody wants to hear about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it wasn't until, you know, women in consciousness raising groups started talking about rape and uh, intimate partner violence that, you know, we got a, a general awareness of violence against women and sexual exploitation. And it wasn't until an anti-war movement that you, that, you know, vets, I mean, nobody denied that they've been um, at war, but a tough guy was supposed to just, you know, he, he wasn't supposed to be hurting. I mean, that was just being a pussy, right? Um, so, uh, so that was the argument. And then, um, over the years, uh, the, one of the things I laid out in trauma and recovery was that there were, I, th I thought of recovery as having three stages. Um, the first being safety where you can't, you, you just have to think about self-protection in the present. And that's a complicated <coughs> process because nobody can be safe alone. Um, and uh, and then once you have a kind of a safe base from which to say that was then, this is now, then you can begin to process the past trauma and integrate. Uh, uh, this won't be news to the psychologists among you. Um, and then the third, and, but everybody agrees that treatment of post-traumatic stress involves some kind of metabolism and integration of the traumatic experience. Um, if you're just avoiding it and trying to push it away, it's still there and it still haunts you. Um, so you've got to make it part of your life story, but not the whole life story and part of your identity, but not your whole identity. Um, and you've got to grieve for the things that you've lost and that, you know, uh, that might have been that uh, that that you've been robbed of, um, and then but that doesn't go on forever. And then eventually, you start thinking more about the the present and the future, and you have more of a sense of rejoining the community in a more proactive way. And you can um, kind of do things that you were too afraid to do before. Um, because you were always on alert for danger. Um, and um, so those were the, that was the argument about the three stages, not that people march, you know, bum, bum, bum from one to the other, but you know, that, that there's a focus that moves over time. And, um, and so, and that's held up pretty well that the book came out 30 years ago. And then over time, I've been thinking about, well, maybe, you know, if 
if trauma really is a social problem, not just a matter of individual psychology, then doesn't it need a social solution, not just an individual recovery? And um, if it really is a social injustice, if it originates in injustice, then isn't justice part of, doesn't justice need to be part of recovery? So that, that's been the idea. I've been working on it for quite a while. I, um, but um, so I interviewed 30 survivors about what justice might mean um, to them. If anybody ever asked them, which nobody ever did, um, because the justice system we have is not designed for them. They are just witnesses, if, you know, and, uh, and really, I mean, one thing that I've often argued is that if you really wanted to invent a, a laboratory for uh, aggravating post-traumatic stress disorder, a court of law might be the ideal place because um, it's an ad hostile environment, it's an adversarial system. You don't have any control over it. Um, you, you can't even give your own narrative. It's a, you know, a, a hostile interrogation and with yes or no questions and uh, designed to shame and discredit you. Um, when what you need for recovery is social support and social acceptance and, and um, a, a chance to tell your story in your own way. Um, so, and certainly for groups that have been traditionally subordinated, um, you're, standing, you're, you're, you're standing and your value in the justice system is uh, uh, so marginal that you're not going to you're not going to have credibility. You're not going to be valued. You're not going to be treated with dignity or respect. So, um, so I asked survivors what what would be um, if they could write the script about what would be a just resolution. What would make things right? Um, what would it be? And it was a pretty diverse group and they didn't all agree on everything, but the, they agreed on certain things. Um, the, the thing that everybody wanted was acknowledgement and vindication. That, and they wanted the process to be about them and the harm that was done to them and how to repair it. So truth and repair, basically. Um, so acknowledgement, vindication, some people wanted apologies, others didn't. A lot of people wanted apologies and acknowledgement much more from the bystanders that had enabled or, uh, or been indifferent uh, or been complicit. Uh, then they wanted, they didn't care that all much about the offender. They wanted the community to validate and vindicate them and apologize to them and make amends to them. So apology uh, amends much more from the community than particularly from the perpetrators. 
they weren't that crazy about punishment. They partly because they didn't see that punishing the offender was going to do all that much for them. Um, and those who went through with the criminal justice system mainly, and there were six out of the 30 who actually went through the whole criminal process, which is a much higher percentage of survivors than actually do. Um, I mean, for sexual assault, the estimates of uh, convicted cases to, you know, actual cases is like one, one percent, some of to five percent, something like that. Um, uh, if it's a black stranger and a, and a blonde white young woman, virginal woman, then the justice system is all over it. But otherwise, but that's not what most sexual assault is. So, um, uh, <clears throat> but they want they went through with it because they they'd seen up close and personal how dangerous this person was. They figured he'd done it before and he was going to do it again. And they said things like, "I couldn't live with myself if I knew I could have done something to stop it," and I didn't. So. They weren't that keen on punishment. They were also not that keen on forgiveness. Um, uh, and somebody mentioned the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which has been the sort of world model for restorative justice. Um, I have a friend slash colleague who is a psychologist named Pumla Gaboto Madikzela, um, who was on the commission and who uh, oversaw some of the um, restorative encounters for the minority of perpetrators who were willing to apologize. Um, but um, she said the most, the truth part of it was the most successful part because it was very victim-centered and um, the, the deal was that perpetrators had to acknowledge and confess their crimes in order to receive amnesty. But the hearings were all about the survivors and they were centered and the testimony was broadcast on radio to the whole country. Um, so, and um, Desmond Tutu who chaired the commission treated these survivors with such dignity and respect it, it, it made it impossible to persist with the, there hasn't been the kind of thing that happened in the United States where you have this lost cause narrative about how benign slavery was and um, you know, how the slaves were happy and they were being civilized and so on. Um, the confessions of the crimes and the testimony of the survivors means, you know, there, there hasn't been the kind of uh, apartheid propaganda uh, success that there was for the Confederacy in the US. Um, but the reconciliation part, she said, really hasn't worked out so well because there was never any amends. There was never, um, you know, so that the majority black, black population remained 
in dire poverty um, and you know a, a few politicians got rich but there was you know there, there was no 40 acres in a mule there was no um reparations mm -hmm. and she thought that really needed to be part of justice um so truth and repair not truth and reconciliation not truth and well more truth and reparations i think is what comes out of the book as the vision of of justice um so why don't i stop there um and uh let's discuss okay questions comments speeches from the I, I wonder uh judy what percentage approximately of the cases involved family members or people they worked with versus strangers um in general or in uh, yeah my, well either in the book or in general whatever is there in, a general, in, in general it's strangers are for sexual and domestic you know for yeah violence against women strangers are a minute fraction of the, um uh and that uh and actually one of the there's been a, there was an interesting study it looked at the epidemiology of PTSD in the US. And um, women are twice as likely as men to have PTSD, about 10% of women and 5% of men. Um, and one of the reasons is that um, the, the violence is mostly at the hands of people they know. And so first of all, it's a much more of a personal betrayal. And second of all, it's likely that it doesn't happen just once. Mm -hmm. you know? And, you know, the longer the, you know, the, the greater the frequency, the longer the duration of the violence, uh, the more complicated and severe the PTSD you're likely to see. So, um, and even for interpersonal assaults, women had a much higher rate of, um, PTSD than men because the the modal uh, perpetrator for women was an intimate partner. The modal perpetrator for men was a barroom fight. That's mm -hmm. what a barroom fight. Oh. Right. Yeah. So not somebody emotionally important and not likely to happen again. Um, so the notion of justice for the people who have been attacked by people they know. Uh, that must be quite, as you're saying, that would be, I mean, what do they, they want them to confess and apologize or maybe not even, or, or, or mainly confess or what? They want them to be outed. Hmm. They want the public to know and they want them to be disgraced. They, yeah. they want the shame taken off their shoulders and put where it belongs. Mm -hmm. um, some people wanted um, and then they want the community to figure out what to do with this guy so that it doesn't keep happening. Mm -hmm. um, so some people wanted apologies a lot 
her confessions, a lot of them didn't. Um, uh, a lot of people, you know, survivors of childhood abuse wanted oftentimes apologies, you know, where was my mother? Well, with the incest cases, you, the mother was often physically or mentally ill, addicted, dead, or battered. Um, so, you know, um, disempowerment of the, the moms was often a correlate of child abuse. But, um, but for a kid, a kid doesn't know that. Or that for a kid, the mom is the person who's supposed to, you know, take care of me and protect me and rescue me. And so they wanted their mothers to apologize and they wanted to heal that relationship more than they wanted to heal the relationship with the perpetrator. Jerry? Morning. Uh, our justice system, aside from some lip service, is basically a system of punishment, not rehabilitation. Right. So I'm just curious in terms of the women that you've worked with, do they believe more in rehabilitation as opposed to punishment? And if so, what type of rehabilitation would they propose? Well, it turns out actually there are not just my informants and patients, but there's actually been a, a national survey of crime victims that um, reports that they prefer uh, rehabilitation to punishment two to one. Um, so, Yes, most of the people I was I interviewed would much prefer rehabilitation if only they knew, if only we knew how to do that. Um, I mean, part of the problem is that we've invested so heavily in prisons and punishment and practically nothing in rehabilitation. So we don't really know what works. And um, the only models we have are um, basically studies that have been done on prisoners who've been, or, or people who've been court mandated into treatment um, because, which means it's a very unrepresentative sample of, you know, if your odds of getting away with sexual assault are 99 to out of 100. Mm that 1% that actually ends up in prison is not, you know, they're gonna be much more, much more disturbed and um, uh, compromised. At, you know, they're, uh, they're gonna be the kind of people who end up in prison, you know, who don't have the resources to protect themselves. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, the data that come out of that kind of study are pretty equivocal in terms of, we, we, we've never even done the kind of epidemiology studies to look at, you know, who are the perpetrators? And let alone uh, looked at what might motivate them to get, go into some sort of rehab program. The, the best data we have are from um, batterer intervention programs, 
um, where the you know they're outpatient, but the court the there's been a a, a court order for the offender to get into better treatment. And the best known model is called the Duluth model um, from a, a, um, a program, uh, uh, a, a feminist program that was developed in Duluth, Minnesota. Um, and there it's, it's, it's not anger management. These are not guys, I mean, these guys can manage their anger fine. They don't beat up their bosses, you know. They don't beat up their coworkers. They just beat up their women and kids. Um, so it's not that they've just sort of lost it and they can't control themselves. So it's understood as a as a method of of dominance, and you know, an abuse of power, and it's group treatment. Uh, the guys, it's, it's a lot of it is um, educational. And then the guys kind of talk about their stories and call each other out on their rationalizations and excuses. And, um, you know, well, she didn't have dinner on the table. What was I supposed to do? Um, and uh, after a couple of years of weekly meetings, uh, you know, the follow-up data, and, and they, they measure the outcomes by how the victims are doing, the survivors, you know. And um, a couple of years of that kind of treatment, but we, if, if it's well supervised, so that, you know, if the guys drop out, the probation officers on it, that seems to work pretty well. But we just don't have we don't really have the models because nobody has really done the work. This is all fascinating. And yeah. uh, of course, as a clinician, it's if anything, even more fascinating. And it's even more fascinating because I know you a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So um, I'm fascinated. I, I just want to comment on one thing and then I have a couple of uh, questions and so forth. Um, when you're talking about uh, the, the two to one, uh, People don't need to be punished. I don't want to. Okay, can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, I remember this was around 1987. I was listening to a man named Brewster Smith, who was a social psychologist at Santa Cruz. And he was saying, you don't have to punish people. You just have to stop them. Um, and it was, it was such an insight. It just hit me square between the eyes. And it's something that I've lived with ever since and tried to think about. So that's, that's one thing. Um, I love what you're saying about bystanders, about that's where the action is. And I see that obviously as a clinician in, in working with people and thinking about how they talk about the bystanders. I'm wondering, that seems to me like an idea that has to push into the societal realm. Um, that, you know, that, that courts, that, you know, all the people that yes, would be absolutely. involved with victims. And I'm just wondering how you see that uh, happening as a result of uh, your discussion of it. Um, is that making any headway to have, for example, the, the criminal justice system be thinking about how to work with survivors and bystanders? Um, 
I, there, there are a few models um, that I wrote about in the book that I think, I mean, it's, it's, there's, they're, um, they're really more just, uh, a few concrete instances of how this might happen mm -hmm. in terms of um, uh, sort of reimagining the justice system. Um, and um, it ranges from things that are already in place and could be scaled up <laughs> um, to um, more sort of aspirational um, models. But um, one of the things that's been in place for quite a while and isn't well known um, is this trust fund that was created by the Victims of Crime Act and it was uh, under Ronald Reagan um, as a law and order measure. Um, but it's actually, I think of a very progressive model in which the, there's a trust fund administered by the Justice Department um, and then similar ones in the states that's not taxpayer money, it's based on fines on convicted offenders. And the money goes to serve survivors. Mm. Um, so it goes, first of all, for victim compensation, for medical bills or lost time from work or that sort of thing. Um, it goes for victim advocates in the courts, in the criminal courts. And that has made a big difference in terms of trying to make the courts a little more friendly to survivors. Um, and the third thing it goes for is to support grassroots agencies like rape crisis centers and battered women's shelters. And a lot of those agencies that were started you know, during the second wave um, of the women's movement, um, are now, they get a lot of their money from VOCA funding and uh, the Victims of Violence Program, which where I was the training director for 30 years um, at Cambridge Hospital, um, a lot of our programs were VOCA funded. It's like we have, we have hospital-based victim advocates. Um, so if somebody you know, comes into the emergency room, so there's someone there who, who's been beaten up by her partner or his partner. Um, there's a victim advocate there that can help them get a restraining order or get housing, get you know, child support, whatever they need. Um, we, so we had hospital-based victim advocates. We had a homicide bereavement center um, that, uh, Visited, did home visiting uh, for people who lost a, a family member to homicide. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we had a community crisis response team that um, responded to you know things like a school shooting, and that actually it was a 
but it was a community organizing model, not a parachute in an expert model. So we had our team was, uh, had participants from lots of different community agencies that worked with trauma in different ways. And when we got a request, our, you know, a couple of people from our response team would go in and meet with the people who asked for the, you know, like just here in Cambridge, there was a police shooting of a young man of color. Um, they didn't want to deal with any of the, you know, authorities. Um, so, but the person who, so we referred them to, to our community crisis response team who would come in, or, um, a person who ran the team who could meet with them, help them design the response they wanted, rather than just saying, everybody come in room and talk about their trauma, which, uh, so, so VOCA money could be way expanded and there's no reason why taxpayer money couldn't also contribute because that would be the whole community taking responsibility. And there are a number of other models of police education about trauma and a, a wonderful model of community law of, that was started by a survivor that in, who grew up in poverty in the backwoods of Vermont. She got herself through law school and she founded something called Have Justice Will, Will, Will Travel. Goes and meets with people in their homes. People who live on the back roads, don't have a car, don't have a driver's license, cannot get themselves to court, you know? Um, and, and it's a multi-service. And it's not just about getting a restraining order, it's about helping people, you know, get their GED or get their driver's license or, you know, so um, that kind of thing. Judy, uh, what, what, are, what are some of the trend lines in terms of sexual abuse and incest? I mean, is it getting worse, better, or how does it vary? About the same, there was this one, there, there's, we have good epidemiology now, nationwide randomized studies and, um, it's been, you know, there was one done in the 1990s and one done, one published, I think, in the 1990s, one in 2014, unchanged, basically. I mean, other kinds of crime have come down, um, but not these, um, which is, I think, I mean, you need a, these are symptoms of, you know, a very profound, um, this is patriarchy, <laughs> you know? So, you know, until you see, and, and in terms of, of, I think somebody mentioned, you know, the uh, discovering that, uh, you know, a, a, the, the media being 80% male has a sexual harassment problem. Um, my view is that any male dominated institution has a sexual exploitation problem. And uh, it's when women get to be about 20%, 15 to 20% that what I call house cleaning happens. Um, you know, 
uh, in psychiatry, I was on the Committee on Women of American Psychiatric when and women became about 15% of psychiatrists in the 80s. Before that, we'd been, you know, basically token women. And, but when women get to about that critical mass and begin to talk to one another and support one another, then you discover that the alpha males consider it an entitlement to kind of, you know, have sex with anybody they please. And that, uh, and that was true of psychiatrists abusing their patients. So we did a nationwide survey and published it in the American Journal of Psychiatry and showed that about, um, what? 7% uh, of male and 3% of female psychiatrists had had sex with one or more patients and 95% uh, of the cases were male. Wait, say that. Wait, what was that again? About 7% of the men and males and 3% of the female psychiatrists who answered our sur anonymous survey um, acknowledged sex with one or more patients. All the serial offenders were males, so about 95% of the cases were men with mm -hmm. male or fe female or male patients. Um, and you know, they just kind of rationalized it. Either this was helping them with their sex hangups or this was, um, you know, it was okay because really this was love. And, um, and so, you know, they, the, they began to have to do a little cleaning house. And some of our big, big shot psychiatrists here in Boston had to quietly turn in their medical licenses. Um, and that's what happens is happening now on a great on a much bigger scale with me too. Mm -hmm. And again, uh, women in Hollywood had just reached about fifteen percent of women behind the camera, women producers. Um, uh, about twenty percent of major stars in the hundred top grossing movies, because most of the top grossing movies are action movies and that sort of thing. Um, so, and women in the military, you know, when you get to about 20%, then you start at least removing some of the, the notorious, the most notorious perpetrators from their positions of power. Even then they- I, I have a question. Um, Judy, I've been reading, and I'm sure everyone else has read too recently about the, um, violent internet attacks on women journalists around the world and do you see some kind of connection between is it you know is there is there some connection between that kind of violence against women uh in the public sphere versus in the private oh yeah yeah i mean they um it uh you know they're what they have no business being out there um, uh, you know, it's backlash. It's, you know, these are women integrating uh, a public space where they have no business to be. And they say that the um, attacks against women on the 
social media are very are different from the ones against men on the social media well they're very sexualized yes i'm just reading a book about uh, women lawyers and, and the book is lady justice maybe we'll get the author on but anyway among the among prestigious law firms and the judges federal judges who feed people to the clerks to the supreme court their famous cases of some of these judges had abused women systematically for decades oh, but, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but they finally just when, when they catch them uh they can creep away resign their post and then usually and then often continue to get jobs as this and that and this and that they don't really ever get punished but i think maybe because they're lawyers the, the 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 female lawyers want them they want some punishment and but they uh, fall outside it, the jurisdiction of the judicial oversight yeah, system when they retire from their positions yeah and once then they, they people yeah. who were yeah. going against them say well there's nothing we can we can't do, do anything out of the because system yeah, right the system. yeah you know he's, yeah. he's retired with you know no this guy kaminsky right um, yes sorry, yeah was like notorious i guess who he got on the Supreme Court. Kavanaugh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And in uh, those trials, I think uh, Anita Hill's in the book and also um, Blasey Ford, the professor. And they said, yeah. you know, their trials, they wind up, even when they say, oh, we believe you, but it's like a show trial. Yeah. You yeah. Know, nothing actually is done to any of the people who perpetrated the injustices nothing's really done even when people say oh yeah we believe you yeah no it's uh and no the kavanaugh thing was a real disgrace because susan collins who voted for him mm -hmm. said well he's i i believe professor ford but um he's entitled to the presumption of innocence well wait a minute the presumption of innocence is for defendants in criminal trials where they're facing the possibility of imprisonment. Mm -hmm. That's why the scales are tilted, because the state generally has more power than an individual citizen. In this was not a criminal trial or even a civil trial. This was a job interview. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and she is a senator who's supposed to know about the law. And she's talking presumption of innocence. That was pathetic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Hamp, do you have a last question? Final? Yes. Yes. Um, I just wanted to say a couple of things. One is here in here in uh, Nashville, uh, there's quite a few marriages that happened uh, uh, between mental health professionals and their patients. Uh, in in particularly in the last generation of uh, mental mental health people, last meeting us, I guess, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. a little before <laughs> us. Uh, also, I I, uh, I was glad you tied in prisons because uh, I I spent two or three years spending three hours a week in a in in a uh, women's prison here, mm -hmm. and. Uh, uh, I uh, I ended up running groups on uh, not all by my choice, but I was glad I did. On uh, one was female sexual abusers, female sexually abused, and 
female murderers. <laughs> and all, all three groups were, uh, the uh, uh, women were about 98% uh, sexually abused as, 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 as kids. And um, the sexually abused group uh, started in inviting in other people, and while they prison tolerated it, we 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 had up to about twenty five people in a uh, group, and, and they were uh, death on the female sexual abusers who were there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But 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 that's really tied in, I think, with with the. Uh, crime background well it's i mean um yeah i mean also women who've been who are in prison for non-violent offenses are also um the majority have childhood abuse histories yes that, um uh but the converse is not true most abused kids, both boys and girls, do not go on to abuse other people. And that's important to right. understand. Judy, yeah. are there any other legal systems around the world that have a different approach to hearing cases like this that do any better in, in doing, having a justice system that the victims think we ought to look at? That's a good question, and I don't know the answer. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I um, and I don't know how to get the answer exactly because um, um, I, the studies are so rare. I mean, a lot of countries have implemented restorative justice successfully for things like nonviolent crimes committed by young people where there's consensus that, you know, heavy punishment is not, a, you know, they need a chance to be rehabilitated, but some consequence, but the crimes are serious and they're, um, uh, you know, burglaries and things like that. Um, and they have good outcome data in terms of satis victim satisfaction. But it's been much more controversial to apply restorative justice ideas in, in cases of violence against women. Um, so I don't know the answer. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming thank on. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for having thank me. Thank you, everybody. Okay. Bye-bye, everyone. Your, your, bye -bye. Your, book, her, your book is not coming out till middle of March. March 14th. March 14th. March 14th. Right. That's, okay. when, uh... well, that's only three weeks away. That was Judith Herman. Her new book is titled Truth and Repair, How Trauma Survivors Envision Justice. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or from wherever you get your podcasts. Our podcast also stream on WIOXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.